Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, we read, After two days, it was the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, and in the original text it says, and they kept on saying, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now Mark's gospel describes the events that are going to lead up to that very familiar scene that you're aware of, the Garden of Gethsemane. It will include two plots to murder Jesus, one by the chief priests in verses 1 and 2, the other by Judas Iscariot in verses 10 and 11. And after the plots come the preparation as a woman pours a very costly perfume over the head and body of Jesus. Jesus himself describes this act of sacrifice and love as a preparation for his funeral, for his burial in verses three through nine. This will be followed by the Passover meal in verses 12 through 26. Warren Wiersbe, in his expository outlines, writes about this passage, quote, The chief priests and scribes had already determined to kill Jesus, but they wanted to do it after the Passover. Since Jesus was a popular person and Jerusalem was filled with excited Jews, it seemed wisest to wait until after the feast, but God had other plans. Judas would make it possible for the leaders to arrest him during the feast. The Lamb of God must die on the Passover, unquote. Jerusalem would have been excited because perhaps as many as one million Jews would have flooded into the city proper. Now, in the 14th chapter, Mark will present Jesus as an honored guest in verses 1 through 11, as a gracious host in verses 12 through 26, as a submissive son in verses 27 through 42, as an obedient prisoner in verses 43 all the way to verse 72. In the New Testament chronology, the events described in verses 1 through 11 take place after the triumphal entry. So why does Mark place it here? Because that's the place where in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13, in John chapter 12, verse 2, they place it before, but Mark places it afterwards. And so Bible teachers, Bible scholars, Bible students ask the question, well, what, what is it about placing it here? And I think that the answer is a very simple answer, actually. That Mark is giving the reader a flashback. He is setting the stage for the arrest of Jesus and the execution of Jesus. And he's placing it in this context so that you'll understand. And the contrast is shocking. The Passover plot. The Passover feast. How do you have both of these? The Passover feast was a celebration, a joyous, 
festive celebration. It marked God's glorious deliverance of his people from the pain and the persecution and the slavery of Egypt. And so here you have this incredibly exciting, joy-filled experience, and you have this plot to kill Jesus. And this is what makes it interesting. If that contrast doesn't surprise you, nothing will. Because think about the religious leaders. Their job is to celebrate the Passover. It's to lead the people in worship and honor of the true and living God. If it's the, if it's the leader's responsibility to lead the people in worship, to lead the people in discipleship, to lead them, how do you explain this? The religious leader's job is to celebrate the deliverance and the saving of life. Not the plotting and the taking of life. And so read verse 1. After two days, it was the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread or atsuma or the leavenless feast. It's the same event. Hag, ha, matzot in the Hebrew. Pesach, Passover. So Mark reveals, even in this tiny sentence, two interesting facts. After two days, it's the Passover. It's Wednesday. It's the final week of the life of Jesus. In two short days, the feast of Passover would begin, ushering in seven more days of celebration. A total of eight in all. For the Hebrew, they celebrated Passover from Nisan, 12. To Nisan 21, the Passover was the lamb slain on the 14th of Nisan. That from Exodus chapter 12, verses 6 through 11. It was always the full, the first full moon after the vernal equinox. This is the time where the lamb would be slain in the temple and it would have to have been eaten in the city of Jerusalem. Now remember, remember that the first Passover ceremony was celebrated in the evening, at night. Remember that night when the sun set and the stars came out. The Pharaoh and the people of Egypt were fast asleep. They were oblivious to the danger that was about to befall them. Remember, the death angel is on its way. It is going to kill the firstborn from every single household. But the Hebrews were awake. Faint lights flickered in the slaves' quarters because they had received advanced warning. The great God Jehovah was about to bear his arm. He was about to initiate deliverance. And so the Passover marked the day when slavery ended and freedom began and oppression ended and deliverance began. It became a type and a picture of a world, a world lying in darkness and the ever vigilant Jew staying awake, keeping watch, understanding that God's promises were true. And by the way, the Passover was always held indoors, unlike the other feasts on the other days. 
people would celebrate outside, but this was an inside celebration. On other days, family and fellowship might be ignored, but not on Passover. This is the day that blood is thicker than water. This is the day that is the time for praising the Lord. This was the time when a father presided over his house and children listened carefully to the teachings of their father. And at the center of the feast and celebration was the Passover lamb. It must be a lamb of the first year without spot, without blemish. And remember, the four days prior to the Passover was set apart to carefully inspect the lamb. And the job of inspection was taken very, very seriously. And remember, the four days prior to the execution of Jesus, he is under the scrutiny of the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They're watching him carefully. They're trying to determine if they can find some Fault, some spot, some blemish. And when the time of preparation was over, the lamb would be taken away to be slaughtered. And just like the sheep is silent before her shearers, he opened not his mouth. You see, it wasn't enough that the lamb had to be slain. The head of the household after the death must make sure that the sprinkling of the blood is placed on the door so that the destroying angel might see the blood and pass over that household. Remember the promise when I see the blood. I will pass over you. And when the Lord sees the blood applied Execution and judgment is averted. The ancient rabbis, by the way, would tell the tale of a little sick girl lying on a couch, troubled, not knowing whether the blood had been applied to the doorpost. She would call to her father from her couch saying, Father, I greatly fear lest the blood hath not been sprinkled on the lintels of the door. I pray thee see to it. And he would laugh at her fears. But at her persistent pleadings, he went out and looked and lo, the servant had neglected the task and the basin and the branch of hyssop were brought in a hurry and the hyssop was dipped in the blood and then it was sprinkled over the door so that the door would be saved. And so there is this ever occurring, reoccurring statement Look to the lamb in order to be slaved. Trust in his sacrifice to avert the judgment. The same is true of the blood of Christ. It is only effective to those who appropriate it and apply it to their life. Faith is the condition of life. Faith is the hyssop branch that sprinkles the lintel. Faith is taking the bush and sticking it in the basin and then applying the blood over the lintel. And that's what you do. By faith, you apply the blood over the doorway of your heart. The night was pitch black. The stars were covered. The death angel 
was coming. But the promise for everyone inside the house was that they were secure. Because they've trusted in the promise that God has given that a lamb would be slain and that your sin would be overlooked. And in the court of heaven, you could hear the cry of not guilty. And the lamb was eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And the bitter herbs were a reminder of the bitter toil and the weariness of persistent slavery and captivity and bondage in Egypt. And the unleavened bread was a symbol of haste and the absence of sin. And so think about that haste and the absence of sin. What does bitterness and the absence of sin have in common? What do those two elements bring into our discussion? They're the very ingredients of repentance because whatever else repentance is, it's sorrow for sin. But repentance is way more than sorrow for sin. It has to be a willingness to abandon sin. And now we understand the picture. Otherwise, sorrow and bitterness remain sorrow and bitterness. Unless you're willing to turn from your sin. And so Orthodox Jews believe that eating bread with leaven during the Feast of Unleavened Bread was strictly forbidden. Even the presence of leaven in the house was forbidden. And so even today in some Jewish homes, the cleansing of the house or the apartment before Passover turns into this symbolic search for wickedness and hypocrisy. And so you begin to look in your own life, in your own circumstances, at the wickedness and the hypocrisy, and you drive it far from your heart. And so the only bread eaten during the Passover was this unleavened bread made with only flour and made with only water. It was leaven, no leaven. It was... That way it wouldn't rise. It is striped and pierced during the process of baking. And so, again, even that bread, think about it, because it doesn't rise. It's placed on an open fire. The stripes are burnt and the piercing takes place. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound like somebody else who had stripes and who was pierced? No wonder in the Old Testament says, and by his stripes, we are Healed, And the Bible says they will look on him whom they pierced. And yet in communion, we experience not simply the sorrow of the passion and the sacrifice of our Savior, but joy, joy in the knowledge that his sorrow and passion has resulted in our deliverance. The children of Israel ate the Passover with their sandals and their staff in their hand because they were ready at any moment. For the signal of departure. And the Lord Jesus has many titles. But in John's gospel he's introduced as. The Lamb. Of God. Who will take away the sin of the world. And look at the plot. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might. Take him. By. Trickery. And put him. To death. 
Matthew's gospel adds in Matthew 26, verses 3, 4, and 5, then the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. It is a plot. And it's taking place at the highest levels of authority. You know, it's interesting to me. The level of wickedness and selfishness that human beings are capable of. We often resort to trickery. We will resort to deceit and trickery if we think that there's a higher good at stake. My friend Don Vino sends me a little newsletter once every couple of weeks and he loves to tell tales. He sent me this. I thought about this morning. He wrote a man in Florida in his 80s calls his son in New York one November day. The father says to the son, I hate to tell you, but we've got some trouble here in the house. Your mother and I, we can't stand each other. We're getting a divorce. I've had it. I want to live the rest of my life in peace. And I'm telling you now so that you and your sister don't go into shock when I move out. And he hangs up. The son immediately calls his sister in the Hamptons and tells her the news. The sister says, I'll handle this. She calls Florida. She says to her father, don't do anything till I get there. I'm going to be there on Wednesday night. The father says, oh, 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 all right. He hangs up and then the old man turns to his wife and he says, okay, they're coming for Thanksgiving. But what are we going to tell them at Christmas? It's pretty impressive. The links we will go to get what we want. And the religious leaders meet in the palace of the high priest. I want you to think carefully about what's happening. The private animosities among the Herodians, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they are putting aside their theological differences, their political differences. They're putting them aside in order to address what they perceive as to be the common danger, Jesus. His crime, challenging their authority, eroding their power. Capturing the attention and the affection of the people. It's interesting to me, we're not told what they talked about. We're simply told that the religious leaders sought how they might take him by trickery or by deceit. When you see the word trickery and deceit, think lies, think manipulation. Benjamin Disraeli, who was... A hundred years earlier, the prime minister of Britain wrote, the world was never conquered by intrigue, but it was conquered by faith. But in order to preserve a nation and a people, the religious leaders are willing to go to extraordinary lengths, even if it means murder. And by the way, that's what we're told. Jesus must be put to death. Jesus must be put to death with the least possible delay. 
We also read that it wouldn't be safe to proceed against them until the immense population of pilgrims who flooded Jerusalem went away. They kept saying not during the feast. And so how is this possible? These are the political and spiritual rulers of Israel. They claim to know God. They claim to represent God to the people. They claim to provide godly spiritual leadership. And so you have to ask yourself this question. How do you come to the place where you deceive yourself into thinking that this is a good idea? The answer is actually a lot easier than you might think. Think of every time you've deceived yourself. Where you thought sin was a good idea instead of a bad idea. Where you thought dishonoring God was a good idea instead of a bad idea. Keep in mind the nation of Israel were held together by their religious beliefs. The Jews had experienced idolatry and slavery and captivity. And for the observant Jew, the temple, the Sabbath, the feast, the religious rituals, the sacrifices, and their deep belief that God had called them to be a distinctive people and a separate people. And this absolute sense of distinction and separation allowed the Jewish people The opportunity to remain distinct in a culture that had been inundated with idolatry and wickedness and perversity. They're thinking that they're holding on for dear life. And the Jewish leaders knew their religion was the binding force that held them together. And they weren't going to allow anything Or anyone to threaten or redefine or overthrow or break their religious laws and break their religious traditions and break their customs and break their ceremonies. To break the Sabbath was a serious offense because it threatened loose behavior. And if a Jew was willing to break the Sabbath, he was willing to break the other laws. And the religious leaders see this as a threat. And so remember what Jesus is is going to be accused of. Why, he breaks the Sabbath. A little bit later, you know what else you're going to read? Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But remember, he's talking about the temple of his body. But the religious leaders see this as the temple, the Jewish temple, the central place of worship in their life. And so Jesus is threatening to take away the two things that made them unique in the world. Just like now. There are people who won't give up their religion no matter what you say to them. I have my religion and I'm fine with my religion. It seems interesting to me how many people prefer religion to relationship with God. What is it about religion that offers so much comfort and so much peace and so much hope apart from Christ? You see, the religious leaders are holding on to their nation It was my privilege to interview Chuck Colson just months before he died. He was the very famous counsel to the president. His office was right across the hall from Richard Nixon's. 
He was called Nixon's hatchet man and became famous for Watergate, but even more famous for devoting his life to families in prison. He wrote, quote, many Christians, like most of the populace, believe the political illusion. That is that political structures can cure all our ills. The fact is, however, that government by its very nature is limited in what it can accomplish. What it does is perpetuate its own power and bolster its own bureaucracies, unquote. Both Political circumstances and religious circumstances can make offers that they can't keep. My religion will save you. My religion will cleanse your sin. My religion will reconcile you to God. The religious leaders have experienced several confrontations with the rabbi from Galilee. And in every single confrontation, Jesus has prevailed. Jesus has exposed their unrighteousness. He's exposed their wickedness. He's exposed their hard hearted because that's what Jesus is in the business of doing. Revealing the true circumstance of our heart. He also exposes The hypocrisy of their so-called love of God. He even proves over and over again that they are ignorant of the very scriptures that they profess to believe. One Bible writer says, quote, he had also denounced them as disloyal to their master in heaven and had invoked on them woes. You'll remember, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, so searching and scathing as to pierce even their hard hearts and to bring a blush on their brow of brass. And the people had rallied to him rather than to them and enchanting the ears of those on whom they had always securely counted to listen with unbounded deference and admiration. And so they hated him. The religious leaders were wrong about so many things. They were wrong about the nature and severity and extent of their own sin. And that becomes the biggest problem you face and I face. It's to underestimate the wickedness of our sin, the perversity of it, and its power to kill us. They were wrong about their sin, and they were wrong about Jesus. The religious leaders refused to accept the fact that they were unacceptable to God, and in their minds they had no sin, or at least no sin that was worthy of disqualifying them from heaven, and they couldn't under any circumstance bring themselves to believe that Jesus was going to be the solution to the problem of the wickedness of their heart. And so what were they thinking? What are you thinking? What are you thinking inside that head of yours? For the religious leaders, they were thinking, Anyone who accused them of being so wrong and so depraved and so sinful couldn't possibly be from God. 
After all, these are a religious people. These are a people who read the Bible in the original language. These are the people who pray. These are people who give to the poor. These are people who observe the law of Moses. These are people who are set apart by God. How could they possibly be disqualified? How could they possibly not be accepted by God? And you might be thinking exactly the same thing. Why wouldn't God want me? Why wouldn't God take me? I've never killed anybody. What have I done that is so wrong, that is so bad, that is so wicked? The religious leaders are determined that Jesus isn't the answer. And someone might have whispered the word miracle. How do you account for his miracles? How do you account for the, the eyes being opened and the deaf ears being opened? How do you account for the fact that dead people come back to life? How are we to think about it? And they whisper the word Beelzebub. That these miraculous powers are clearly energized by Satan. How else do we explain what he's done? Were the religious leaders acting in what they perceived was the best interest of the nation? We know at least some of them were. We know that the high priest would later prophesy in John chapter 11, verse 50, and John 18, 14. The high priest will say, it's better that one man perish than that the whole nation perish. He's got to go so we can stay. But look at verse 2. But they kept saying over and over Not during the feast, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. The religious leaders were sensitive to the fact that many people considered Jesus to be a prophet. And since that was the case, the religious leaders thought, look, look, if we're going to kill Jesus, let's do it after the holidays. I mean, that's only decent, right? If you're going to leave your husband, you might as well wait till after Christmas. Because you never know what he's going to give you. Let's wait until after the holidays. And since this is the case, the religious leaders think it's best to kill him. Yet the Lord has a different plan. God's sovereignty and divine providence was about to overrule them. The Paschal Lamb of God would be slain on the very day that God had ordained since before the foundation of the world. In type and picture since about 1400 B.C. Every year, year after year, in the wilderness, the children of Israel would reenact this Passover. Year one, break the bread and the bitter herbs, put the blood on the doorpost. Year two, year five, year 10, a a lamb is slain. Year 20, year 200, year 500, 500 years, Jews continue to observe the Passover. 600, 700, 800, 1,000 years go by. 1,200 years go by. 1,300 Passovers go by. Entrenched in the Jewish mind, in the, entrenched in the Jewish culture, a lamb is slain. A lamb is slain. A lamb is slain on the first full moon after the vernal equinox. A lamb is slain on the first full moon after the vernal equinox. And don't you think it remarkable that God would set aside that day to sacrifice his own son? 
the Paschal Lamb of God would be slain on the very day that God had ordained. Adolf Hitler bragged, what luck for the rulers that men don't think. That's what wicked people do. They count on you not thinking. Jesus has already warned his disciples after two days, after two days, they're going to come and take me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to incarcerate me. They're going to deliver me up and I'm going to be crucified. Before their meeting was over. We learn from Luke's gospel, something wholly unexpected by the religious leaders takes place. Judas Iscariot will make his way into the meeting. We'll just take a quick look in verse 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Judas was disappointed. All of his hopes for wealth and distinction were evaporating. They were disintegrating. He had formed a friendship and a relationship with the rabbi from Galilee in the hopes that he would establish a kingdom and a nation, that he would overthrow the yoke of bondage and that he would provide political and social and economic redress to a people who were so profoundly Oppressed, But the Bible also says if we look deep into his heart, the truth is that he was a thief and he loved money and all that money could buy. And so he made up his mind to betray the master. Providence, it seems, would come to the rescue. The religious leaders would rescind their former resolution and enter a course of action that had been predicted by Moses and predicted by David and predicted by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. And they would do it through trickery and deceit. You know, the Department of Defense defines deception this way in their handbook for spies. You're probably wondering, what are you doing with a handbook for spies? Don't ask. Quote, those measures designed to mislead the enemy by manipulation, distortion and falsification of evidence to induce the enemy to react in a manner prejudicial to the enemy's objectives. The manipulation of information and perception to induce the target of that deception to take or not take action, thereby benefiting the deceiver, unquote. So what happens? What happens when a person is committed to doing something so evil? So terribly wrong. What lengths will people go to plot and plan and maneuver and deceive? The religious leaders are willing to pay whatever price is necessary to get rid of Jesus. Even if that means murder. I want you to think about that for just a moment. 
because they occupied the highest offices in the religious establishment. Think of the level of self-deception necessary to go forward with their evil plan. You see, Satan targets our mind and our body and our will and our heart and our conscience. Satan's weapons include lies and suffering and pride and accusations. Satan's purposes include that we remain ignorant of God's will or impatient with God's will or that we walk independent of God's will. And then we grow hardened and resentful towards God and his word and his people. Our defense against such savage attacks include knowing and understanding and acting on God's will so that we can experience the grace of God in Christ Jesus. It's the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's the intercession in heaven by Jesus for you. And this is why we do what we do. The Bible paints a bleak picture of the human heart. In Romans 3.10 it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understand. There is none who seek after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good. No, not one. It goes on and says in verse 13 of chapter 3, Their throat is an open tomb with tongues. They have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so, they'll do everything, everything, to get rid of Jesus. So how did the religious leaders respond to Jesus? It's really only one of four ways. Number one, Some genuinely believed Jesus was an imposter, a deceiver, and a false messiah. Do you realize that that's the exact condition of Saul of Tarsus before he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus? He genuinely, with all of his heart, believed that Jesus was an imposter, a deceiver, and a false messiah. And the same is true today of many people. They believe that he purposely misled people. To some... They were open-minded enough to explore the truth. Was Jesus the Jewish Messiah? Is he who the prophets say he is? Some of those include people like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Some did believe and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. Luke 13, 31. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Acts chapter 15, verse 5. Some people began to consider and they started to do the math and do and it started to add up that Jesus was who he said he was. But some were professional clergy. They saw Jesus as a threat. They held their positions because of prestige and livelihood and comfort and security. And therefore they opposed Jesus with all of their might because he threatened their job. That was Caiaphas and Annas. And what were the serious mistakes they made? Number one, they misunderstood, misinterpreted and corrupted God's prophecies. God's word. If you neglect, pervert, distort 
the word of God, the chances are you're going to come to a wrong conclusion. And number two, they committed serious sin after serious sin. I want you to think this through. They committed serious sin after serious sin after serious sin and thought to themselves, it doesn't matter. I'm fine just the way that I am. And number three, they rejected God's way of righteousness. And they substituted a personal righteousness, a self-righteousness. In other words, they couldn't bring themselves to believe that the righteousness that God insisted on was perfection. And the only person who could fulfill that righteousness was the person of Jesus Christ. And number four, they allowed religion and tradition and ceremony and ritual and rules to meet the basic needs of their mental and emotional and spiritual well-being. Because they knew that they were a religious people. But it wasn't a religion that resulted in forgiveness and hope. And so the battle lines were drawn. Who or what can free people from the enslaving power of sin? That's the question. Who or what can free people from the enslaving power of sin? Here's the irony. Both God and the religious leaders agree that Jesus must die. God's reason? To save people from their sin. The religious leader's reason? To save the nation and preserve their religion. Oddly enough, the choice is still before us even to this day. Jesus has got to go. They're going to kill him for all the wrong reasons. God is going to allow him to die for all the right reasons. Because your sin is terrible. And the necessity of your salvation is going to only be accomplished in his sacrifice. And now we set the stage for the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know it's easy to get distracted. We can make serious mistakes, corrupt God's prophecies, and corrupt God's word. Lord, we can make a serious mistake of underestimating the wickedness of our sin and overestimating our own personal righteousness. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be guilty like the religious leaders of trusting that we're fine just the way that we are apart from Christ. 
but that, Lord, we would come to grips and we would begin to understand that it is the sacrifice of Jesus. It's the death of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus that gives us the ability to experience grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. And Heavenly Father, we pray that by faith we would take that hyssop branch and dip it in the basin and apply it to the lentils, the doorposts of our heart so that we could find safety and security, a passage in the day of judgment, knowing that judgment is coming. That a day will happen when we have to give an account of our lives to God. And we must of necessity explain why we would reject a perfect savior and a perfect sacrifice. Why we would reject Jesus to save ourselves and the way that we want to live apart from God and apart from Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to that person in their heart a heart that's empty, a heart that's dark, a heart where the lights have gone out, a light that can only expect a visit from the death angel. Lord, I pray that they would be motivated. To participate in the sacrifice of the Lamb and the application of His blood. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand.